Hi, everyone. In this episode, you'll hear our guest refer to the struggle that she's inherited and the values and ideals that have come from her ancestors. While listening to her speak, I was thinking about the struggles, the ideals, the histories, the victories that I've inherited from my own ancestors. My grandfather, Randir Shori, was an activist in his own right, and he himself descended from freedom fighters who fought the British so many years ago for India's independence. While hearing our guest speak today, I thought about the ways that I come from struggle and the ways that I come from victory too, and the way and the importance of the fact that it's my honor, it's my obligation, and it's my right to also engage in these struggles. I'm grateful to the mentors that I have in struggle, namely Dr. Brunavjani at The Ohio State University, whose guidance and the ability to just observe the way he holds the ideals, the values, the faith, and the practices that I wish to implement in my own life. So today, while listening, I encourage you to think about the ways that you come from struggle, the way that you contribute to victory, and the ways that you would like to pass this down to the people that come after you. Welcome back to Gen Zeal. Hey everyone, and welcome back for another episode of Gen Zeal. We're so happy to have you joining us, um, and we're just going to kick right into it. Um, I'll turn it over to Vahini. Hello, everyone. Today we are joined by someone that is a legendary human being, Michelle Fan. Michelle is an alumnus of Rutgers University and is currently a fellow at the Robert F. Kennedy Foundation. More importantly, Michelle is a Pisces sun, Aries moon, Virgo rising, and is a passionate and ardent supporter of the K-pop group BTS. Michelle is also an advocate for cheese foam on bubble tea. Welcome, Michelle. Hey, Bora. Hey, everybody. (laughs) Oh, we're so excited to have you. Are you ready to go right into the rapid fire? Yes, I'm so excited to be here. I will say I didn't know what the rest of my birth chart was. So thank you so much for filling that in for me. Of course, we have our resident witch on deck at all times. (laughs) Hey, that's me. Um, but our, our first question is, if you could collaborate with BTS on any project, what would you want it to be? Okay, so I really had to think about this one, um, and think about what value I could possibly add to international Korean supergroup BTS. But I think I would really love to see a cooking show with episodes of them, like making their favorite recipes. And then I... I eat the food and that's the collab. And what an important job that is. No, absolutely. (laughs) Um, I won't be able to rate any of it, but I'll be happily just like devouring all of it. And then um, hopefully I also don't need any screen time. I can just be like the producer who eats everything and the camera is just different shots of BTS in the kitchen. I think this is the perfect time in our podcast history to also reveal that I'm a BTS (gasps) super fan. Oh my God. (laughs) so now I have to ask who's your bias okay I have to say like it is so hard to maintain one bias because they're all amazing I definitely started out with I yeah I definitely started out with Tay and he is on the back of my phone over here um but lately it's been Hobie but then I went to the concert in LA and like Jin totally bias wrecked me so now I'm like really confused and a little bit scared 
I have been like a Jimin girl from the jump and I've just <gasps> stayed, yeah. I've just stayed on this Jimin. Me and my, one of my really close friends, we always would watch like YouTube videos in college and literally consistently I have been a Jin bias or a Jimin bias. So he is gorgeous. Like he is consistently that girl point blank period every single time. Vahini's just sitting here silently. <laughs> it's okay, Vahini. We'll, we'll find your boy soon. Yeah. I feel like Vahini would love Namjoon or Jungkook. I can see her being a Namjoon or Jungkook stan. Here's the thing. She is going to be a Jungkook stan because, like, like he's kind of always forced into the center of attention role. Mm, and Vahini mm. will see herself in that. Yes. And also, he likes to be naked. So I feel like we can all appreciate that. Yeah, we really can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so our next rapid fire is, what are three things about yourself that you wish people paid more attention to? Um, oh my gosh. Okay, that's really hard. I don't know if I can... Can I come up with three things? Okay, uh, first thing would be my art, I think, because I put a lot of effort into it and it's not really relevant to any of my advocacy work at all, so I feel like it doesn't get the same attention. Except now that I really think about it, it's all like embarrassing fan art, so I don't know that I actually want people to pay attention to that. Um, I'd also like people to acknowledge the fact that I lead a very unhealthy lifestyle. Um, I think I put on this appearance, especially in my college years of being very go, go, go. When in reality, I think the foundation of that was really just not taking care of myself. So please um, let me have time to nap. Um, And the last one would be Oh, man. Okay, at risk of sounding like a freaking nerd, um, I really love school. So I really do like learning new things. And like, I actually do enjoy like lectures if they're good. So like, if you have to go to a professor's like lecture, like for extra credit or something, like give me the link, you know, I'll go with you. That's so cute. I'm excited to do that. I have a couple classes I think you'd be fun to sit in on. <laughs> um... The next question, if you had a magical power, what would you want it to be? Oh, my God. Okay, my first answer would probably be, like, to just, like, that Cinderella um, moment where, like, she transforms into that, like, gorgeous gown. I would love a power like that where I can just magically, like, transform whatever I'm wearing into, like, something perfect. But if I really, like, sat down and thought about it, probably, like... I would choose like the ability to pick moments that I want to remember like perfectly because I can't remember anything. My memory is shit. That is such a cute one. That reminds me of like the pensive in um, Harry Potter. Yes. I would love one of those. (laughs) Our last rapid fire question is if you were a bubble tea order, what would you be? Okay. This one really is very important to me. Um, my favorite bubble tea order is rose tea with white bubbles and strawberry heart jelly and rose petals on top. But I feel like if I was an actual order, I'd probably be like Earl Grey milk tea with brown sugar pearls. Um, because it's not actually as flamboyant as the rose tea order, but it's delicious and it can keep you up at 3am while you're catching up on work. That's very thought out. I'm noticing no cheese foam. Yeah, no cheese foam because I'm lactose intolerant. So I feel like that doesn't really vibe. But I would be best friends with all the cheese foam girlies. You know what I mean? (laughs) Just for the record, I want everyone to know Michelle put me on to cheese foam. 
Oh, I love cheese foam. I get it every single time. And I, I really shouldn't because it's not good for me, but I can't stay away. I don't think I know what cheese foam is. Cheese foam is basically cream cheese and whipped cream, and it's used as a topping for tea and coffee. It makes your boba taste similar to a cheesecake. Fortunately, it is not what I was imagining, which was orange Cheetos cheese dust on top of boba. Let's get into the, the nitty gritty. Let's get into the juicy stuff. Um, so Vahini and you um, know each other from before this. So we know um, that you were raised in a New Jersey suburb. Gotta love New Jersey. Um, it gets a call out every... <laughs> gets a call out every episode um but that suburb was predominantly white so what were some of the ways that kind of forged and sustained connections with your own culture and traditions um i think it wasn't always like intentional and i think there was definitely a point in my life where i did not want to be chinese which obviously like just looking at me um that clearly did not work out <laughs> Um, but I think speaking the language, um, so I speak Mandarin at home and two regional dialects, um, and keeping a very good, like steady relationship with my grandparents, um, who are, I mean, anybody's grandparents, um, no matter what culture or traditions you hail from are, are vessels of history and culture and tradition. Um, so having a very close relationship with them, I think really helped me a lot kind of maintain like different recipes and holidays and things like that. Um, and then I think advocating for community like celebration and acknowledgement and visibility, like as soon as I learned how to do that in high school. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it totally does. And so like, I guess, would that be the times where you brought these spaces of yourself to interact with one another? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I think I've become more and more conscious as I've gotten older of not just like tolerating the fact that I'm Chinese in a like predominantly white spaces, um, but like almost emphasizing it and taking a lot of like pride in my culture. Um, and kind of like normalizing like the holidays that we celebrate or um, the different like traditions that we practice. Um, and I think that's actually a really interesting question. I, I feel like I have, and as a society, we all kind of have moved into this attitude of like gatekeeping things. Like we're more vocal about cultural appropriation than we've ever been before and other things. And while I still think that's completely valid, like I am... I always love a good call out moment. Um, I think there's a lot of missed opportunities for like learning and community building sometimes um, when we aren't also at the same time willing to kind of bring people together. Um, but it's tough and I recognize that. For sure. And so I wanna transition into a really big part of your experience in the past few years. So in the spring of 2019, you spent time studying in Hong Kong. So can you set the stage for us? Why did you choose Hong Kong? Like what brought you there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, like I said about Jimin earlier, Hong Kong is that girl. Like I know there's a lot of major cities and everyone's like, oh, Paris, like um, London, New York, LA, da da da. I'm sorry. The city of cities is Hong Kong. Um, but besides that, <laughs> I've always wanted to reconnect with my Chinese heritage. And in some ways, Hong Kong is an even better place to do that. 
um, than mainland China because it's managed to hold on to a lot of historical sites that would have otherwise been destroyed in the Cultural Revolution had they been located on the mainland. Um, but on the other hand, I definitely experienced a lot of culture shock. It is not at all like mainland China, which I have been to several times before. Um, it's very, very different, and the etiquette in many ways is quite different. Um, but at the end of the day, I think I just really wanted a big city where I could fall back on um, some more like familiar lifestyle habits, like English and some other like Western culture and customs if I had to. Um, which in retrospect really did not serve the purpose I wanted in Hong Kong either because you kind of get ostracized for speaking English, rightfully so, um, by a lot of local students who kind of just see you as like another grifter or like exchange student. So how did your experience in Hong Kong affect you, change you? How did you grow there? And I guess that would lead to like the bigger question of what did you leave Hong Kong with? Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. How did it affect me? Let me, I feel like I have to boil that down. Um, I just learned so much. Like I made so many incredible friends with both like local and international students. And I feel like I was really able to appreciate like different lifestyles and different perspectives. Um, I think I really realized how much I do not want to live in America for the rest of my life. Um, it showed me so many flaws within our system, even through the most like mundane, tiny things of like daily life in Hong Kong. Um, granted, Hong Kong is not perfect. And in recent years, it um, recent years have shown like just how violent and oppressive and shady the government can be. Um, but for me, while I was there, having access to a clean transit system and a safe transit system, walking around without ever getting a text that there was like a shooting two blocks down from me, being surrounded by, for once, by people who look like me and eat the same food as me and celebrate the same holidays as me, like that was just a fantasy that I had had um, for so long. And that was really life-changing. Um, and I don't think it would be wise for me or really anybody to move to Hong Kong now. Um, but I think it definitely helped me rethink my lifestyle in America and reconsider like what's important to me. Um, and then for your second part of that question, like what I left Hong Kong with, besides like learning so much more about myself and like making all these incredible new friends who like just did so many amazing things um, just a few weeks after I left, um, I think it it left me with a strong desire to go back um, like after living there during study abroad, I was kind of convinced that I was going to figure out how to move there after college. And then everything kind of went to shit. Um, <laughs> and not just for me, I mean, like the entire region just like was launched into chaos and seeing my friends at risk, um, I think really reemphasized for me how dangerous politics, specifically politics in China can be and how much work needs to be done to even start moving in the direction of something better. So if I wasn't sure about human rights work before that, it 1000% solidified that for me. Yeah. And so you were kind of saying how like nearly a year later in the spring of 2020, um, your relationship with Hong Kong had looked very different from then when you spent your time there. Um, so can you share with the listeners like what sort of brought about that change um, for people who didn't know um, about what was going on in Hong Kong at that time? Yeah, sure. So actually, um, 
I was still in Hong Kong while this was happening, but uh, it was like toward the summer. I think it officially started in March. Um, but it, it things kind of blew up more during the summer of 2019. Um, there were a lot of protests, uh, essentially for democracy in Hong Kong, but it all kind of came um, from this really contentious uh, law and like legal changes that were happening um, that what that a lot of people were afraid of putting Hong Kongers at the mercy of the Chinese judicial system, the mainland judicial system, which um, more often than not just like finds people guilty. Um, so there were it was seen as a very like imminent threat to democracy in Hong Kong. Um, so that's kind of like where where I became involved in this because even after I had left Hong Kong, I was still in all of these group chats. Um, I still, you know, was in like, for example, like the dorm group chats um, and like study group chats and all of these other things where all of a sudden my phone was blowing up with like, this person got arrested or um, we're hosting a meeting tonight uh, at this location to talk about like what happens when you are in police custody and all of this stuff was happening. And I was like, oh my God, like, these people that I know who I I really care about, who I got bubble tea with, who I got dinner with, who I worked on projects with, like they're who are my age are being thrown into jail for attending a march or a protest, which is like, you know, the same thing that I probably would be doing or that I could be doing back at home without having to worry about those same kinds of things. Um so yeah, I was very invested very early on. <laughs> Yeah. And so you kind of talked about like, what was the spark to start organizing? So how did you kind of bring that into fruition? Like, what were some of the things that you did to support both your friends and the community in Hong Kong while you were back here in the States? Yeah. So for a little while, I was single-handedly like running this social media campaign to get like college students to care. Um, but I think um, both of you having done probably very similar things, um, can agree that social media at the end of the day only goes so far. And sometimes when you feel like you've just been yelling into the void for a while um, and you're not really seeing anything good come back at you, it can be especially frustrating. Um, so then I was like, I don't know how much people actually know about this. Like, I don't know how much engagement you know, viewing my Instagram story or like this Twitter accounts, like live tweets, like really counts. Um, so I wanted to host an event on campus and kind of drive donations toward um, free press institutes and independent journalism in Hong Kong. Um, so a lot of that involved like calling regularly with friends in Hong Kong to actually stay up to date on what was going on um, and reaching out to clubs on campus before I was eventually able to get a grant and work with the uh, Institute for Research on Women, who they are so amazing. Like they helped me out so much because I was going from club to club to club, like different like cultural orgs um, that identified with like Chinese students or Taiwanese students and like things like this and that. And I, most of the undergrad like student run orgs on campus did not want to have anything to do with me. And um, looking back on it, I completely understand why, because it was huge and I got so much heat for doing what I did. Um, 
but at the time I was ex- in it like so so frustrated um because I was like oh my god you guys are like the Chinese student organization like shouldn't you care about what's happening to Chinese freaking students but yeah yeah so you kind of started to go into like what the route we're taking so what were some of the challenges that you faced while trying to do this advocacy both one being again in the states but then also kind of some of that pushback from the community around you yeah um my goodness there were (laughs) there were a lot of challenges um besides like finding a circle to actually support like what I wanted to do um I mean, there were like safety issues. Um, We ended up having to get the police involved because there were threats of like violence going around on WeChat, which is a popular Chinese uh, messaging app. Um, And yeah, there were a lot of, (laughs) I made a lot of people really angry. And yeah, it was a lot of people who were also very vocal about how angry they were. Um, I remember like, printing out all of these different like flyers and things like that um, with this grant money that I had gotten and like, you know, taking time to go to every single campus um, with a a friend of mine, a co-organizer. And we both were like sticking up all of these posters. We got some of our friends involved. And then the next day on WeChat, I was getting sent videos of like different um, students ripping them off and um like ripping them up tossing them into the trash putting stickers of like you know those like little animated like cute like instagram stickers um well wechat also has those except they would be putting stickers of like chinese police on them um and then like so many like other you know being called cockroaches being called garbage um being called like being accused of spreading hate speech um with my flyers which were just promoing the event um those were a lot of challenges but I mean in the end we were safe and I'm very grateful that we still got the platform that we did yeah and I mean I think I speak for both Mahini and I when I said we're, we're really happy that you were able to be safe during all of this <laughs> um but what were yes. some of the things that sort of like despite all these challenges what were those things for you that was like keeping you to sustain this effort because I know a lot of people if they were facing similar things you know, out of concern for their own safety, they probably would stop. And understandably so. I don't think we're trying to blame people who would, who would do that. Um, but what was some of the things that co- sort of were keeping you pushing along? Yeah. So I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I was really, really fortunate to come into such a supportive circle. Um, I really have to credit um, the Institute for Research on Women, um, specifically uh Dr. Sarah Tobias, who really like stood by me and provided a lot of like, not just mentorship, but like emotional support because it was heavy. Um, but I had a lot of like close personal friends who I was talking to who were keeping me going. Um, and my co-organizer and other panelists, like I also felt like I couldn't let them down and it didn't feel like I would ever be letting them down if something were to happen. And we were like, we kind of have to call this off because even people in Hong Kong were reaching out to me being like, Hey, like it's really not worth it if this is going to like put you at risk. Um, but I think feeling like we were all in this together, like kind of gave me the strength to like keep pushing. Um, and in the end it, 
it was really successful. I mean, it was a huge event. We had hundreds of uh, people participating both like in person because you could still do that at that point um, and online. Um, but I think most of all, it was just the biggest success was that it was like a breath of relief for my contacts in Hong Kong who participated in the panel to be able to kind of see and hear that there were so many people who still cared um, because it, it felt like and continues to feel like maybe even more now um, just such an extremely hopeless situation in Hong Kong. And do you feel like there was certain parts of this experience um, through organizing and communicating that were different for you because of your identity as a Chinese American or a student, like specifically here in the U.S.? Yeah, I feel like, um, like on top of all of that, also like being a woman, I feel like you just get hit with such intense imposter syndrome. And I'm like kind of tired of hearing that term because I feel like it's so like 2018. Um, but just like not knowing when you're supposed to take the lead, not knowing who to ask for resources, because you don't have those institutional connections that benefit more upper middle class American families here who have had the time to kind of like set their roots in. I mean, it took years for my family to even get behind the idea that we're not just supposed to like put our heads down and work our lives away for financial stability and like maybe a, like a teensy little side of respect. Um, <laughs> so to go from that to being the loudmouth on campus, who's like telling everybody that they have to care about like X, Y, and Z and to show up for it by doing A, B, and C, like that is something that you definitely have to train yourself to do. Um, and I'm lucky. I went to a great school district with great mentors and I got that training when I was young, but it's definitely still a lifelong lesson that I have to keep teaching myself. Yeah, and I think that kind of takes us into like our next question and something that, you know, thank you for providing all of that context around what was going on. And I think <laughs> we're like thinking mainly now for the conversation, we're going to be talking about what impact it had on you. Um, but so what was kind of that moment in life that brought you to the conclusion? I know you were talking a little bit just a minute ago about imposter syndrome, but what was kind of that moment that brought you to the conclusion? Like, wow, I hold enough power to be an organizer in this way. Ugh, oh my God. Okay. I'm going to sound like a freaking nerd again. Um, model <laughs> UN. <laughs> so. And that was such a I good know. episode. Thank you for joining us. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, so sorry. I'm kidding. This is so embarrassing. Um, yeah, no, I totally deserve that drag. So <laughs> Model UN was the first time that I ever learned how to get a room full of people. And not just any people, but like sweaty high schoolers who either didn't care or thought they already had all the answers um, to just give me their attention for like a hot second and maybe even listen to what I had to say. So I think like starting Model UN MUN, as we like to call it, um, so young, <laughs> kind of helped me out in that regard. It helped me build up that foundation. Um, but I think after that, when I was in high school, I... Um, I campaigned for two years um, to get Lunar New Year recognized as like a district holiday. And as part of that, um, I also like put together these uh, Lunar New Year celebrations. And I think at the time, um, I don't know how common it was in my area. So I think it was still kind of uncommon in my area. So we ended up having like family, friends and all of these people coming in from like freaking like Pennsylvania just to attend this tiny little rinky dinky like high school event in um 
you know, central Jersey. <laughs> but seeing all of these people like come together of like all of these different um, identities and communities was really special to me. Um, and that was like the driving force behind why I was able to get the campaign going and, and get Lunar New Year recognized. Um, so I think that gave me a lot of motivation to keep going. And yeah, I think like the idea of like a mo- like motivation to keep going is something that a lot of us search for very often. Mm-hmm. Um, I know something that like I've learned within my own work, um, something that's been taught to me or told to me is the parable of the choir where, you know, as organizers, as people that are active in their communities or in these movements, we feel the need to be present for every single step or to lead every single step. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if we work as a choir, some of us can take breaks while the song continues and the song goes on. Oh, a thousand percent. That's gorgeous. Yeah, it's something that I have to remind myself of often, but it kind of brings me to like the next question is sometimes we lose sight of the fact that there's a choir Mm -hmm. or that there's a movement that's bigger than us. And so a lot of us feel like we don't have the capacity to actively participate in movements that really matter. I think a lot of us see ourselves as one person or, you know, when we don't see immediate effects or change or differences. So a lot of movements are actually like left behind and aren't sustained Mm -hmm. at like a peak forceful level. And so I'm kind of curious to know what are ways that you've allowed yourself to engage in these spaces without burning out while also maintaining your presence in in these movements or spaces? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a very tricky balancing act. Um, I... Oh my God. I I have to like blame social media for some of this. I feel like we have definitely entered an age of like thinking that visibility equals everything. And I feel like so much of that is because of social media. So I feel like part of that too, like some of the most visible like forms of showing up is like literally like a protest and like you see those pictures of people attending protests and doing all of that um or like being the main speaker or this and that um and I think that a lot of times like social media makes us kind of tunnel vision and think that maybe that's the only way to show up and advocate for different causes um And there's different levels of like blame and antagonism there because I think there are definitely arguments to be made about like people who are kind of grifters and other stuff like that, but I won't get into it right now. Um, I think otherwise you kind of have to set boundaries for yourself to take time to slow down and rest and um, read more about what you're fighting for. (laughs) I think that that's something a lot of young organizers forget about nowadays is that like girl, you, you have to read the news. I know you don't want to, but like, you know, New York Times, Al Jazeera, some of that stuff, you do need to read it. And you, sometimes we need to read theory. Like you don't have to engage like all the time in like the super like heavy and dense stuff, but like, you know, find a podcast to listen to, like find a video essay or whatever. I think there's always like opportunity for more learning. And that's some way that you can still feel like you're tapped in without, feeling like you're going at 110 and burning yourself out. Um, I think it's also really important to recognize that some of the most important gains we make from organizing are not from all the moments that are most visible, but often from the moments that 
are not at all. It's like the mundane work of emailing people, holding discussion circles, asking for donations, filing petitions, taking care of people, showing up where people just like need numbers, maybe for like a film screening or something like that. That's the stuff that doesn't look good on Instagram like at all, but it matters. And you can kind of divvy that out and take it at your own tempo. I want to touch on quickly something that you mentioned um, about setting boundaries. So um, I think as young people, I think we all kind of understand that like setting boundaries is something that we all aspire to do, but it's something very difficult (laughs) to do at the same time. Um, So as you've kind of been on that journey um, and learned to how to set boundaries in different aspects or different places in your life, like how has that resulted in your overall well-being and like ability to continue this work because you know where your line in the sand is? Oh my gosh, it is so hard to actually set those boundaries because I think we also have this very like fatalistic mindset as young people that like if I don't save the world three times by the time I turn 30, then I'm a good for nothing. Like I can't, you know what I mean? Like I haven't made it, you know what I mean? Um, So I hate those like Forbes, like top 30 under 30 lists or whatever. I mean like kudos to the people who make it on there. I think they're all amazing, but like I just hate us like pushing ourselves into this very weird like hustle culture mindset um so I think like learning how to say no to different opportunities is really important I think you kind of have to set you have to like sit yourself down and like think about what your goals actually are and like align yourself in that way I know that that sounds horrible and nobody actually wants to spend like a Sunday afternoon doing that and like thinking about their life like it's the scariest thing in the world but like you do have to kind of think like well what matters to me because if something doesn't matter to you that way and you're not going to be able to actually like invest yourself in it I don't think it's worth it to always say yes and I've gotten a lot of opportunities from people who are like hey can you like help moderate this panel and can you participate in this event and can you write this piece for me and like all of that stuff and at a certain point like sometimes you have to be like I'm really sorry I can't take this on right now and then what's always amazing is if you know someone who can and you can kind of not push that onto them, but, you know, give them an opportunity to, like, show their light and talent and everything like that. Um, but, yeah, it's not easy. It it does require a lot of practice and it's not fun, but you will be better off for doing it. Um, yes. <laughs> I, like, everything you said is, like, a big, a big yes. And another place that I want to go, we talked a little bit about identity, um, but I think something that we should talk about, um, Asian women, Asian communities um, have often, not even often, just overwhelmingly have been painted as submissive, docile, obedient, overwhelmingly unproblematic. The Asian community as a whole, but Asian women really, 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 it's really hard to break out of this mold. Um, but you and I know that breaking this mold is what's necessary in organizing work and stuff. And so I'm kind of curious to know what, how your relationship with this model minority trope and narrative, um, and these expectations have changed and adapted with time. Like, how do you balance being, you know, your good eldest Chinese daughter (laughs) self, right with the the organizer activist human rights badass self absolutely where where do those connect (laughs) 
Um, I think a lot of the responsibilities that I grew up with have informed like the way I go about taking on work and giving work to other people. Um, and I think that in many ways there are things that I have to unlearn to take better care of myself, but I also think that it's made me more, a a more considerate like person to work with, um, because I know what it's like to, to feel like you have the world on your shoulders. Um, and I wouldn't want to put that on anybody. Um, and I think there are a lot of things that I don't love about, you know, all the stereotypes that we deal with. But I, I think one thing that I so appreciate about growing up with this background um, is that it really teaches you to like value the power of community because you are watching your your mothers and sisters and grandmothers like protect that with their life, you know? Um, that said, in terms of challenging these stereotypes, I think it's definitely been, um, <laughs> I think it's something that I'm still learning to do. Um, I definitely came out the gate in like high school being like, well, the way that I'm going to disrupt being the, the stereotype of being submissive, docile, and obedient is by being like the complete opposite of that. So I was such an obnoxious person in high school like so sorry to anybody who knew me but also like you don't so like please like don't even don't don't talk to me if you knew me in high school um (laughs) but I think I'm I'm kind of like figuring out that balance now and it's hard because you want to like disprove all of those things so you veer very much to like the complete opposite side and then as you get a little bit older you realize like wait this really hurts me to feel like I'm not allowed to collaborate with people on things or let other people take the lead. Um, and you know, sometimes you do need to do the grunt work. Um, and sometimes it's because people are looking down on you and like, sometimes people are making you do that because they're like, Oh, that's an Asian girl. Like we can get her to do it. And she's not going to complain to anybody. And she's good at math. Um, and other times (laughs) it's because you're working with people who have too much on their plate and you guys care about each other. And there's a balance that needs to be struck. Um, So it's certainly not easy. And I think that you kind of have to figure out like what, what direction you're moving toward in terms of like, you know, am I doing this for me or am I doing this to like disprove like the stupid, I don't know, like HBO series, like stereotypes that, I mean, that's probably even outdated for me to say, because I feel like there are so many like good Asian shows out there nowadays, but now and then there's like weird lines where I'm like, really, Mindy, did you really have to write that? We're both just like laughing right now to the Mindy Caitlin comment right there at the end. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Like, I just had to say it because some I love her, but like sometimes she really just does too much. You know, like you girl bossed a little too hard there. Let's relax. Well, I'll go on the record and say that Mindy Kaling really ruffles my feathers, really, really grinds She's my a feather so ruffler, a gear grinder. That's her. So we're coming, we're nearing the end of this. We're nearing the end of our very beautiful discussion. Um, so we've, we were <laughs> able to hit on kind of a lot of points. We talked about Hong Kong. We talked about identity. We talked about how those things kind of like intersected for you. Um, but how would you say all of this has coalesced into your strongest conviction? Oh man, my strongest conviction. Firstly, that BTS is better than the Grammys. <laughs> and se- <laughs> they don't get snubbed by the Grammys, they snub the Grammys. 
Her, exactly. <laughs> um, anyways, my actual strongest conviction, sorry. Um, I think that as many shitty things are happening in the world, there are just too many good people fighting back against them for me to just give it all up, you know? I think a lot of times people have this mentality of like, fuck it, the world is burning, everything sucks. And while I'm absolutely not discounting that because it's true, everything does suck. Um, and I know we're all tired and we're burnt out and not everyone wants to be screaming like about justice and blah, blah, blah from their ivory tower. Um, I still have hope because I just see so many amazing ordinary people still holding on. So I'll hold on with them. And that's my strongest conviction. Everyone just sit in that because that is where we are going to end. Thank you so, 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 so much for joining us, Michelle, for this episode of Gen Zeal. I think we have all gained so much from your insight and we wish you all the best. Thank you. Okay, so this week I was talking to someone and they told me that I have the energy that I was raised by women and I don't really know what that means except for it was the best compliment I've ever received in my whole entire life um, and it made me reflect and think about the ways that women have shaped me, have molded me, have guided me, have raised me and have made me who I am today and how I wouldn't trade that for the world and so at this point I will now list all the women that I love so 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 much. First shout out, my mom. Love you. And then, of course, I'm so honored and grateful for both of my grandmothers. My sister is the most badass person I have ever, ever met. Umanti, also a superstar. Um, as I well love as you all of my so other much. honorary grandmothers. Super duper icon. Ashmasi, Karamami, Gatirvedianti, Gatimasi, Flanaldianti from Monroe, Sonia Vivi, Jintol, Radhika, and of course all of my Malika, Kelly, Riti, Sarah, Vita, Chanel, Dio, Michelle. I love you, love you, love you all. Forever and ever. <laughs>